so this week we're dealing with uh, the Freudian, or the beginnings uh, of the Freudian theory of, of sexuality. We're looking at uh, two main uh, uh, works by Freud. Uh, the second of his three essays uh, on the theory of sexuality, which was published in 1905, though he'd been building up to this, really, um, for the previous 10 years. Um, and uh, the case study uh, of Little Hands, which is published a few years uh, after the three essays. Uh, it's the first um, psychoanalytic case study of a child. Um, uh, and many people at the time thought it would be impossible to do. Nowadays, of course, child analysis is a huge specialism uh, in their entire court, um, degrees in it and uh, journals devoted to it. and. Um, uh, uh, institutes like the Tavistock or whatever where special trainings in child analysis take place. So it's a very experimental text for Freud, The Case of Little Hands, uh, and uh, unusual in that it's actually conducted through the, through the, the parents, in particular through the father. Uh, and it didn't set out to be a clinical case study. It set out to be um, just note-taking on the part of two parents uh, one of whom had, the mother had been in analysis with Freud and the father was a, a, a follower of Freud, so he wasn't a psychoanalyst. He was a, a very distinguished musicologist, um, Max Graf. And he, they just started taking notes of child observation um, in the light of uh, 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 some of Freud's ideas. And then their little child, uh, little hands as he's called, develops a phobia. Uh, and a childhood anxiety phobia, which just spreads and proliferates and comes to a, a key point, you know, it sort of paralyzes his whole, his whole life. And then uh, gradually that's worked through. Um, so the two texts go together quite well. Um, as I said in my notes, for Freud, it was a sort of double triumph. First of all, it was a clinical triumph and he was able to, uh, as it were, at one remove, um, with only a couple of visits. So he knew the family quite well and he knew Little Hands. He was able to uh, uh, cure Little Hands of his anxiety phobia. But it was also uh, for him a theoretical um, triumph because it, uh, the whole uh, child observation that led up to it and the, the extraordinary material produced by Little Hands in the course of that um, case uh, in all kinds of ways, uh, for, from Freud's point of view, um, gives support to indeed more material towards uh, his model of infantile sexuality and um, the, his gradually developing model, it's still in its early stages at this point, of what he hasn't yet called, I, I think he doesn't call it that till 1910, um, the Oedipus complex. So the, the infantile sexuality and the Oedipus complex seem to, seem to be um, what's being played out in the case study. And so in lots of ways, the two texts are convergent, um, but they are also in other ways, in ways that Freud doesn't explicitly register, um, divergent from each other. There are certain things that are absolutely central to the case study that just don't appear in the theoretical reflection uh, uh, which was written before the case study um, uh, on infantile sexuality. Um, uh, the, the most obvious and the key category from our point of view is, is the category of fantasy. Fantasy is, is what the case study is about. 
It's about, it's, it, and the symptoms, uh, 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 the phobic symptoms that little boy produces about horses um, uh, uh, are fantasies um, through which he lives his, his, his anxieties and his fears, etc., by the production of this extraordinary n nar series of narrative cycles about horses um, and the things horses do. So the word fantasy, I think, only appears in a later footnote added at a later point to the, the essay. Um, uh, it's just not there, basically. Uh, and that itself is telling us something. And it is, it is when one realizes and reflects on it, rather extraordinary. Because the case study is centrally about the role of fantasy in the formation of the little boy's sexual identity and his whole organization of his sexuality. Uh, and the other thing that's absent, not at a descriptive level, but at a theoretical level uh, in the essay, um, uh, and that is the relation to the parent. Uh, uh, it's, it's, there's a, there, and I will spend a little bit of time on one of the passages, which is from the third essay that I emailed you as an attachment, um, a page or two. Uh, where Freud reflects on, again, in a very suggestive and descriptive way, but he doesn't um, draw the theoretical implications of his observation uh, on the relationship between the mother and the nursling infant. Whereas, of course, that's all over the case study. Okay? The centrality of the parents, the parents' feelings, their, their reactions to the child, what they say to the child, how the child responds to them. In, it, the, the case study isn't just about a little boy in a vacuum. Okay, is about a little boy at the centre of a web of family relations and interactions. Okay, and a lot of those interactions are, are, are um, unacknowledged and even unconscious. They have an unconscious dimension to them. So that's what's missing, if you like, at a theoretical level uh, from what is in fact a breakthrough essay, the essay on infantile sexuality. It actually radically transforms the whole field of thinking about, about uh, sexuality. And yet these, these two dimensions are just absent, fantasy and the relation to the other, the adult other. Um, so I'm flagging them up very explicitly from the beginning, partly because they will become central to work we'll be looking at later on in the course, fantasy and the relationship to the other. But I want to begin with that, that the radical um, implications of the, of, of the infantile sexuality essay. Um, and I'll do that by just reading out um, the, the opening paragraph, not of the second essay, but of the first essay. So it's the opening paragraph of the whole book. And again, I included that in, um, uh, in the attachment I sent you. Um, and it's chapter one. This chapter one is called The Sexual Aberrations. Um, and I'll, in a minute, I'll reflect on why Freud starts where he starts in telling us the story of human sexuality. OK, so essay one. The very opening of the book. The fact of the experience of sexual needs in human beings and animals is expressed in biology by the assumption of a, quote, sexual instinct, unquote, on the analogy of the instinct of nutrition, that is, of hunger. Okay, so we, we tend to think, still to this day, I think, tend to think of sexuality as, 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 a, as an instinct like the other instincts, okay. Um, Everyday language possesses no counterpart to the word hunger, um, uh, but uh, science makes use of the word libido uh, for, that, 
for that purpose. Okay. And I suppose you could say there are a range of vocabularies in different languages, desire, um, lust, whatever, there could be words like that. Freud has a little note about you know, why in German, the German word Lust is problematic. Um, and again, I'm, if I've got time, I'll reflect on the implications of that because it has two meanings in German. Okay. Lust can mean um, uh, uh, satisfaction, pleasure, the pleasure that comes from satisfaction, but it can also mean uh, 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 desire, excitation, as it were. Um, and so Freud notes that as an ambiguity and a problem, as it were, in his own language. Um, so there's this Latin-derived word, libido, um, which is now pretty uh, in common currency in most European languages. Now, he goes on then to describe a model of sexuality, uh, uh, and he attributes it to, quotes popular opinion. Popular opinion has quite definite ideas about the nature and characteristics of the sexual instinct, as it thinks of it. It is generally understood to be absent in childhood, to set in at the time of puberty, in connection with the process of coming to maturity, and to be revealed in the manifestations of an irresistible attraction exercised by one sex upon the other, while its aim is presumed to be sexual union, or at all events, actions leading in that direction. And then he, having described that, and it's a recognisable um, common sense, traditional, popular, whatever, um, understanding of, uh, of sexuality, he says, we have reasons to believe, however, that these views give a very false picture of the true situation. So he sets it up in order precisely to, to um, differentiate what he's going to say and counterpose it to that traditional or common sense understanding of sexuality. If we look into them more closely, we shall find they contain a number of errors, inaccuracies, and hasty conclusions. Okay. The, the uh, understanding of sexuality uh, that Freud is going to uh, uh, lay out for us um, challenges that assumption of, uh, an ins of it being an instinct that that, uh, that kicks in at puberty, uh, that is genitally centred, uh, that is oriented to the opposite sex, uh, and, and in a sense is connected with a function, okay? If you like a utilitarian function, the function of reproduction. The, the, whether it's in religious languages or it's in pop, a lot of popular accounts of, or official accounts of uh, human sexuality, uh, that it's justified um, by its end product, which is, um, which is reproduction, and, and it's grounded somehow or other biologically in, repro in reproductive function functioning and reproductive activity, and hence it's genitally centred. Um, again, it's that connection with the function of reproduction which, which Freud disconnects, as it were. He, he is also to reconnect it uh, at a later point, um, but in a very different way from the popular understanding, as it were. Okay. So um, the radicality of Freud's understanding of, of human sexuality uh, uh, is signaled very clearly from the beginning. Um, and, uh, first, and I'll make a comment, uh, 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 just to repeat partly what I said in um, uh, in my email to you, there's a problem about translation. Okay, in Freud's German, he uses two terms, instinct and trieb. And the German word instinct is spelt with a K instead of a C. Okay, instinct and trieb. 
Uh, and there's a, there's a pattern of differentiation. There isn't, unfortunately, a moment where Freud reflects theoretically on the differences between those terms and the different concepts that are at stake in those two words in German. Uh, but, it, but there is a very, there's an implicit, uh, if you like, uh, conceptual distinction within his, buried in his usage, as it were. It's not always consistent. Um, he does sometimes, as it were, use the term tree when you might think he, he, he ought to use the word instinct according to his uh, custom and practice. It doesn't go the other way around, I think. I don't think there's occasions where he uses instinct where you think, oh, you really ought to be talking about a trebe here. In fact, he uses the word instinct um, mainly in relationship to animals. Okay? So let's think about um, this instinct trebe, or in, in, in English, instinct drive distinction, because the word drive is the one, it relates to the German verb trieben, to push. Um, a drive is something that impels you or pushes you. And you could say so as an instinct. Uh, and Freud's way of um, mapping or trying to conceptualize the tree or the drive um, is he's, he borrows uh, a conceptual model from biological instinct theory. And that helps him set up a notion of the drive. But it also, to some extent, creates some problems later on uh, along the line of development, as it were. Freud's instinct stroke drive theory goes through a series of changes in the course of about 30 years. It's almost always dualistic. That is to say, he sees uh, a, a pattern of two um, opposing instincts, drives, at work. Now, in the initial way in which he sets it up, um, he makes the distinction between uh, self-preservation, the instincts of self-preservation, and the sexual drive, okay, um, and that they're doing two, they're operating in different ways, uh, and they're doing different things, as it were, and indeed there are a lot of very often moments where the sexual drive is opposed to the operation of the instincts of, of, of self-preservation. And so the question is posed, what's the relationship between the two? How does one relate to or emerge from the other? And, uh, and he gives some very pr productive uh, answers to those kinds of questions in, the, in this essay um, on infantile sexuality. Now, one of his, uh, his attempt to, to, to distinguish, uh, if you like, uh, drive functioning from instinctual functioning um, is built into the very structure of the book. If you were to ask the question, um, okay, this is a book about the whole of human sexuality. It's not just a book about neurosis or, or psychopathology. Okay, it's a book. It's a book about the whole of sexuality, or you know, ordinary, everyday, quotes normal inverted commas sexuality. So why does he begin with chapter one, um, the sexual aberrations? What a funny place to start. You'd thought you'd start with the normal quotes, the healthy, the ordinary, uh, and having set that up. Um, you would then say, oh, and this is, there are these pathological exceptions to the rule, okay? Um, but he doesn't. He starts with what, what, uh, what is translated as the sexual aberrations, um, of which homosexuality is a, is a crucial um, component in chapter, in essay one. And he does so in order to dramatize what, what he, he's, one of his fundamental arguments, which is that the relationship between the drive and its object 
the sexual drive and its object is a very different one from the relationship between, say, an instinctual function and the objects of that instinctual functioning. Uh, and as he says here, the exemplary um, instance of insti instinctual functioning onto which common sense, so to speak, models sexuality is that of hunger and feeding, because that seems to be, in a way, one of the most fundamental, if not the most fundamental human self-preservative activity. And of course, if you're looking at a human newborn, that's what babies do, isn't it? Uh, uh, the child's dependency uh, on the other. Um, is, 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 is manifest in its need for the mother, and uh, and uh, and, uh, and if the, and if even if the mother doesn't breastfeed, um, what the child can be given has to be something that is as close as possible to mother's milk. In other words, you can't just give the child anything, anything that will satisfy its hunger. Uh, the child needs, in a pre-programmed way, a very specific range of of nutritional inputs, which is usually um, uh, best delivered from the mother. There are myths, of course, of the opposite. Um, uh, uh, Henry IV, the, well, the, the King of Navarre, who was to become Henri IV, Henry IV of France, um, uh, was hailed when he was born as a true Gascon. And to prove it, he was given bitter, the newborn baby was given bitter Gascon wine and a gherkin, because these are the, the exemplary foods, mythic ethnic foods of Gascony. And he is supposed to have laughed with pleasure. The legends tell us, I think it's extremely unlikely that if you were to give a newborn baby um, bitter wine and a gherkin, um, that it would get much joy out of it at all. Um, so it dramatizes, in a way, if you like, the, the way with instinctual functioning, there's a set of innate and intrinsic connections between four things, which are the four fundamental categories of instinct theory. Okay? The, uh, the pressure, the pressure of the instinct, the force that, that it mobilizes, its source, which is thought of as being in the body, a bodily source, uh, a part of the body where the instinct functions, um, the uh, object of the instinct, which in this case would be food, and a very, very specific kind of food, not any kind of food, but a very, very specific kind of food, which is species-specific, okay? Uh, and, um, uh, and the aim, okay? So uh, pressure, source, object, aim. That's, they're the key categories. And the Freud takes them over when he wants to think uh, about the drive in its difference, implicit difference from the in, from the instinctual functioning, okay, and that's the that's the kind of if you like, the uh, challenge that he throws down in that opening couple of paragraphs that I've just read out, okay, um, sexual drive functioning is different from instinctual functioning. What then is its relationship to it, um, and. Uh, so he begins where he begins in this book with what's called the sexual aberrations, and in particular, central to that um, homosexuality. To dramatize it in human sexuality, there isn't that same intrinsic, biologically pre-programmed um, innate connection, necessary connection between, for instance, uh, the drive and its object. So the human sexual object is substitutable. Also, that the human sexual drive um, is not initially, in its initial phases, genitally centered. Indeed, where does human sexuality begin? It begins in that first primary relationship of uh, dependency, 
uh, on the nurturing adult, who may or may not be the biological mother, um, uh, and that that um, meeting of a need, of a fundamental need, by the provision of, uh, of, of, of an object that is kind of pre-programmed, as it were. Human sexuality begins there and differentiates itself uh, at a certain moment of its development from instinctual functioning. But it begins there uh, with, oral, with a kind of oral sexuality. And indeed, it, 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 it arises in a kind of multiple way from all the major bodily uh, instinctual functions uh, that are, that are need-driven, that are driven by uh, the needs of self-preservation, of survival. Out of the, the performance of those functions, as a kind of uh, byproduct, um, a range of different human sexual drives, in the plural, emerge. And he tries to, and he takes as exemplary, um, and it is very illuminating. In, as one first struggles to grasp this notion of the tree or the drive, um, he takes as exemplary uh, the feeding, uh, in, the instinctual function of feeding, and the um, arousal of the oral drive and its deviation or differentiation from the instinctual functioning. He takes that as the prototype, and I'll say something about that. Indeed, we can say something about that. Uh, in, in the seminars when we look at those particular passages from, from essay two. Um, before I zero in on that, however, I just want to read out to you to get in focus. Um, he gives a provisional definition. Now, the problem with reading uh, the, the, the straight G translation, the straight G translation, I think is a great translation and, it's, and it presents us with all sorts of aids and helps, particularly to the newcomers to Freud. It's got helpful footnotes, it's got index, it's got cross-referencing in the way that unfortunately the new Penguin Freud translations uh, just don't have it all. Nevertheless, there are problems with this, with the great standard edition translation by straight G. And the, one of the major ones is his decision um, to translate Freud's term trebe, not by the word drive, but by the English word instinct. Now, that has the effect at the level of, uh, of vocabulary of collapsing the implicit distinction between drive functioning and instinct functioning. Okay? That is continually in danger of getting lost because of that translational decision by Strachey. He does, however, put a footnote in um, when the word he's translating in Freud's German is in fact instinct or related words, instinct half or you know, verbal for formations based on the word instinct in German. So he does let you know um, when, when that comes up. Um, but most of the time he uses the word instinct. And this has the unfortunate effect um, cumulatively, I think, of, as it were, rebiologizing the, the drive as it were, of, of linguistically putting into reverse the very process of conceptual differentiation of Trieb from instinct that Freud's trying to do. Okay. So that's, and so you, when reading this text, I mean, I just go through it sometimes with a pencil and cross out instinct and write in tree because it's just, it just, um, just the very word instinct carries such baggage with it. It's very hard to, to, to sort of think one's way around that baggage, as it were. Okay, so when I read out this passage, I am going to substitute the word drive 
for the word instinct. And he's talking here about, and this is section five from essay one, on the very crucial notion of there being component drives, part drives, drives that are located at different sites of the body. Okay. Uh, so in that sense, infantile sexuality in its first emergence is multiply situated or multiply sited, I suppose you could say, um, and, and fragmented. Okay. Uh, so he's talking about the notion of, com uh, the, the, and, and wondering, well, how could you itemize? How could you list? How could you define uh, the number of component or part drives that there are? Um, but he pauses for a minute to give a kind of general provisional definition of what he's meaning by drive. I'm going to read it out. By drive is provisionally to be understood the psychical representative, the mental idea of an endosomatic continuously flowing source of stimulation, as contrasted with a stimulus, which is set up by a single excitation coming from without. So that's the initial contrast, okay? Something that's uh, exerting a continuously flowing pressure that comes, it's endosomatic, it comes from within the body, okay? As by contrast with uh, excitations that come, single excitations that come from without. And he also uses this word, uh, the psychical representative, the in German, the Vorstellung. It's a, a mental presentation, a mental idea. Um, you could use image only with the understanding that it's not predominantly or necessarily always visual. It involves other sensory perceptual elements, the tactility or, or um, uh, olfactory sort of sm smell dimensions, etc., oral dimensions. Okay. The concept of drive is thus one of those lying on the frontier between the mental and the physical. He's, that's how he sees it, on the frontier between the mental and the physical. The simplest and likeliest assumption as to the nature of drives would seem to be that in itself a drive is without quality, it's like pure pressure. Uh, and as far as mental life is concerned, it is only to be regarded as a measure of the demand made upon the mind for work. It's a famous formulation. The drive or the force, the pressure of the drive is a measure of the demand made upon the mind to do some work, okay? And you could add, as a function of its connection to the rest of the body, okay? And so bodily pressures, bodily needs, uh, uh, as it were, um, are represented mentally yeah, in the mind. Um, and they come from a range of different sources. And he says they gain their particular um, uh, qualities uh, that make each one different from the other. Um, it's a function of where they're cited in the body, okay? uh, their source uh, and their aims. And the general definition he'll give of the aim of the, of the tree or the drive uh, is a process of excitation. The source, he says, of it is a, a process of excitation occurring in an organ, in a part of the body. And the immediate aim lies in the removal of this stimulation. Okay. That's, the, that's the most general statement he makes about source and aim uh, and pressure. And in the next paragraph, he does, in fact, then uh, single out um, the, the sexual drive uh, and the way in which it's cited or situated in parts of the body um, that, he, that he calls erotogenic zones. Erotogenic is just a, you know, a Latin-derived word meaning something, zones that generate 
erotic ex quality or erotic excitation. And these tend to be uh, the, you know, the, the sites of the body uh, where, the, where the, uh, the great primal um, instinctual functions take place. The orifices of the body, um, uh, the mouth, the anus, the eyes, the ears, all those parts of the body uh, where, um, as it were, things from the outside come in and things from the inside go out, as it were. So they're sort of uh, transitional zones as well. Um, and they are, they are those parts of the most primitive forms of bodily experience where uh, the, very bo the, the very notion of the body, the very lived notion of the body as, 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 as an entity with borders, transitional um, uh, uh, zones, as it were, uh, begins to map out um, at a very fundamental level of bodily experience. Um, and it's those, those sites initially he sees as being privileged um, sites of excitation and therefore for the um, uh, arousal and development of, of, this, of sexual, sexual part drives. Um, he does come to, to a position in some of his later texts that the whole surface of the body is potentially erotogenic. Okay? The, whole, the whole skin surface of the body, and we'll, we'll be looking at uh, later on this term some theories of the skin ego uh, developed by um, the French psychoanalyst Didier Anzieux. It's a very um, powerful, very suggestive uh, 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 idea of the skin ego. So the, potentially um, uh, uh, both the surfaces of the body, and Freud will say at times even crucial internal organs, uh, are potentially erotogenic. And they can therefore enter into relationship with other zones and uh, 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 other uh, excitable organs of the body. Okay. So the zone is the site of the drive. Now he's going to take as his model um, the oral drive. Um, uh, and it's interesting in the case of little hands, of course, uh, uh, he's not all that. He's clearly past the oral stage of development. He's, he's not, his fantasies don't particularly center around feeding uh, and incorporation. Okay? They center around uh, uh, going to the toilet, a lot of it, right? So around anal functioning, um, uh, and they also centre around uh, uh, the emergence of genitality uh, at, at that early stage. So he's positioned rather later in the, if you like, the developmental arc from uh, the, the newborn infant or the nursling. Okay. So, in the move from uh, the trauma theory we've been looking at earlier this term, we see Freud not just, um, as I said in my email, shifting his explanation, but shifting the object of explanation. So this is not just a theory of hysteria uh, or of obsessional neurosis or indeed of psychopathology in general. It's a theory of human sexuality within which those things will find a subordinate place. Okay. Um, and it's a, a remodeling of our understanding of adult sexuality um, uh, by seeing it as being something that develops out of uh, an earlier uh, form of infantile sexuality. And the question then is, how does one become the other? How do we recognize the first? 
uh, what kind of description can be given of it? How can we understand its functioning? And how does, and it's, and how does a very different kind of sexuality, that of an adult genital, genitally centered sexuality, uh, emerge out of it? Um, and of course, that in some sense is the, one of the interesting things dramatized in the case study of Little Hands. Freud calls the, the, the human infant, uh, uh, the sexuality of the human infant, uh, polymorphous perverse. Okay? Um, that is to say, it, it, it goes out in all directions. It takes many forms. Um, uh, it's the word polymorphous means that, you know, from, just from the Greek. Something that takes many forms. Um, and attaches itself to a whole range of objects, as we see rather engagingly with little hands, uh, who, uh, you know, uh, has uh, erotic and affectionate attachments to all sorts of people and has to learn there are boundaries and there are things you can't do and people you can't go downstairs and sleep with, etc. Um, he has to learn, as it were, the rules. So one of the, again, one of the things that the case study dramatizes very powerfully and which is really only partially um, acknowledged or visible in uh, the theoretical essay is the role of culture, uh, of cultural formations, of cultural taboos and cultural norms, which are much more visible in their functioning in the case study. Now, I want to say a little bit about, we'll spend some time talking about this in the, um, in the uh, seminars. But I want to say a little bit about um, uh, the oral drive, because uh, it's offered as a primary instance of, of human uh, of infantile sexuality. Um, actually, before I do that, I'll just make a further a feed in a further material to this drive instinct distinction. And that might be, uh, uh, again, it's implicit in certain interesting or key passages in the essay and developed more elsewhere, um, what one might call the economic dimension, or one of the Freud's um, key dimensions of his metapsychology. Um, that is to say, the way in which energy functions uh, in, in, uh, in instinctual, as distinct, or as distinct from um, dry functioning. Now, and it, it would be a distinction between, if you like, um, in dry functioning there's a need, the need sets up attention, uh, and the object that will satisfy that need uh, has to be provided uh, that, and that will lower that level of the, uh, of the tension of need. So it's a tension model to some extent, okay? Um, but it's, it's got an inbuilt, it's teleological uh, in the philosophical sense. It's got, it's got an end, a telos, built into it, uh, as most organic functioning has. Um, what biologists call uh, homeostasis, okay? Uh, a search for a constant level. Of, of functioning. Uh, and this is throughout the whole of biological functioning, whether it's blood sugar levels or whether it's body temperatures or whatever, there are certain optimum levels uh, between which the, uh, the organism can function at its best. And the more the organism is moved out of, if you like, its safety zone or its comfort zone uh, into something which uh, the level is too high or where the level is too low, then its functioning becomes in, in, impaired. Uh, and, and indeed, its, the, its survival is put at risk. So there's a range, uh, uh, if you like, of, 
uh, of levels within which, and those levels can apply at all, so, in all sorts of um, ways, whether, as I say, blood sugar levels, body temperature levels. Um, they have to be maintained, so there are feedback mechanisms for, uh, for maintenance within those levels, within, within the organism, and that's one of the main ways in which biological organisms survive. Um, with the human being, of course, the human being is, as a species, we're born prematurely, um, and uh, we need the intervention of the other, the adult, the nurturing adult, to help our bodies start to function homeostatically. Whereas if you think of, I don't know what, little baby turtles or something, you know, their, the mother dumps some eggs, covers it over in sand, goes away, and some months later, um, you know, the, the, the small creature sort of bursts out of its shell and, you know, <laughs> digs away the sand and then heads as fast as it's possible as its four little legs can carry it to the ocean before the predatory birds that gather in large numbers around about that time of the year on certain beaches where uh, female turtles lay their eggs. Um, uh, if you've ever seen any films about the Galapagos Islands, you'll, you, you'll know. Um, uh, and it does it all by itself. You know, there's no mummy there, you know, to, to teach it how to do these things or to give it comfort or, you know, build morale boosting or whatever. You know, it, it does it all, you know, in an almost automatic way. Now, we're not like that. Um, even if you compare us to other mammals, four-legged four species, we're kind of really slow on the uptake because we are born radically immature um, as a species. And you think of horses little foals that are born, within a couple of hours or even less of being born, they're struggling to their feet and they're very wobbly and they are attached to a mother uh, and they're, uh, you know, they need to be f fed, uh, etc. But they're much more further down the way of getting their act together than we are. You know? They can coordinate their body schemas uh, and they, can, and they s can start already you know, to, to function in a variety of ways that it takes the human infant you know, months and years to do. Okay? So the human infant's body becomes, if you like, uh, homeostatic. Um, its, its feedback mechanisms to maintain itself at the right levels have to be endlessly monitored by the, by the adult, by the nurturing adult. You know, we know about you know, the ways in which ba suddenly babies' body temperatures can dramatically plummet or they can dramatically overheat. Uh, 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 and so they endlessly have to be kind of watched. Uh, they're, 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 as a species, we're, we're, in all kinds of ways, our pre-given instinctual functioning um, needs support. Okay, it's, in, it's incomplete. But that's its aim. It's, in that sense, it's teleological, right? It aims to maintain certain set levels. Uh, and, it, and when they're not being maintained, there is a sort of tension of need, which when the object comes, the food, or it may be you know, wrapping the child warmly, or the, the maternal holding of the child, or whatever, um, it, it then um, pacifies, that's the word for Freud uses, the Friedegungs, it, 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 it pacifies uh, that tension of need uh, and, and sustains it at, at, at the desired level. Dry functioning, however, um, described by Freud as rather different. Dry functioning, on the one hand, is a search for excitation, um, a search for stimulus. So it doesn't just feel the tension of need as something negative. I'm starving. I really need food. Okay. Um, I need something to, to, to fill the vacuum. Uh, but it's a search for excitation uh, in, the, in a way that's not related to biological need. Um, and we'll explore this further, looking at passages 
describing the oral drive. Uh, uh, it's a search for excitation, uh, and then, as it were, uh, a building up to a, a, a high pitch, uh, where uh, a, a discharge of tension, having been built up, of, of excitation and, uh, and, and tension is built up, it's then discharged um, in a kind of um, intense, a moment of intensity. Um, which sets up a pattern of kind of uh, accelerating um, a climax, uh, and then and then something, uh, and and then a, di a moment of discharge. So it's a very different pattern, as it were, from uh, the homeostatic um, uh, constant constant level maintenance of instinctual functioning. And indeed, um, Freud postulates, uh, uh, and it becomes increasingly central to his theory till he finally formulates the drive theory, the death theory, death drive theory, sorry, um, that that hunger for an increased acceleration of, ex of, of tension and excitation, building it up, building it up, building it up, building it up, and then <clears throat> discharge, can, can be profoundly self-destructive because it, it becomes finally um, almost a desire to discharge all tension, um, to a desire for sort of self-expenditure and for um, self-obliteration, if you like. So very different from uh, the self-preservative functions of, of instinct functioning. So I think it's quite important to have those, those patterns um, of functioning in mind. I want to say something about the way in which the description of the oral drive, which I'm going to take for granted uh, for the moment, <coughs> I mean, a, 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 a very common objection or question to put to Freud is to say, well, okay, I can see how the infant's kind of, you know, in the absence of needs, you know, substituting something else, sucking its thumb, sucking its foot, sucking its dummy, sucking whatever it can put in its mouth. I mean, that's how babies function, isn't it? Uh, you know, their way of discovering the world is to suck it and see, put it in their mouth. Does it taste good? Bleh, it doesn't. Okay. Um, mouth functioning is, you know, how they, their prism, so to speak, through mixed metaphors, through which they relate to the world. Um, but how is that sexual? Okay, a question might be. Right, where we're thinking of sexual as being, um, you know, adult sexuality, genital sexuality, etc. Now, I think um, Freud answers this in a variety of ways. Sometimes by saying, "Well, there's an analogy between the pattern, of pl the pleasure-seeking pattern of the, of the of the infantile part drive, uh, and and later sexual functioning, and they're also and also." the infantile one is repeated and reprised within adult sexuality. Adult sexuality in all sorts of ways is incredibly infantile. You only have to read the, the February the 14th Valentine's Day messages in the newspapers uh, that people post to each other. And it's extraordinary the amount of baby talk, okay, that is kind of like central to the expression of sexual feeling among adults, as it were. So there's a kind of repetition and reenactment within adult sexuality. Um, of what one might call infantile perverse pleasures. And I'm just going to focus on two cultural representations that, that show a certain kind of adult sexual drama being played out around, um, for instance, the oral drive. Okay. Um, the first one is the one I've handed out to you. Freud cites it. It's a very famous children's book written by a very famous 19th century German um, pediatrician, Heinrich Hoffmann. I mean, I was given it as a child. Um, and what you don't appreciate here, because uh, I, I did it on a machine which didn't do color, is how lurid it is. It's full of screaming reds. 
red, really bright, harsh colors of which red is the dominant one. So if you're a three-year-old or a four-year-old and somebody gives you this story in violent red, let me tell you, it has an impact, okay? So let, I'll read it out to you. This is the story of little sucker thumb. You know, there's so many of these kind of uh, infantile stories that are kind of like moral stories. Um, One day, Mama said, Conrad, dear, I must go out and leave you here. But mind now, Conrad, what I say, don't suck your thumb while I'm away. The great tall tailor always comes to little boys that suck their thumbs. And ere they dream what he's about, he takes his great sharp scissors out and cuts their thumbs clean off. And then, you know, they never grow again. Mama had scarcely turned her back. The thumb was in. Alack, alack. The door flew open and he ran, the great long red-legged scissor man. O O children see, the tailors come and caught our little sucker thumb. Snip, snap, snip, the scissors go and Conrad cries out, oh, oh, oh. Snip, snap, snip, they go so fast that both his thumbs are off at last. Mama comes home, there Conrad stands and looks quite sad and shows his hands. Ah, said Mama, I knew he'd come to naughty little sucker thumb. Okay, so a little kind of (laughs) grotesque, sadistic drama here is being played out. It's a joke, it's meant to be playful, but it clearly sends a message to the child. Now, why? I mean, why are the adults so upset about thumb sucking? You know, what, what, what is it that's being played out here? Okay, but whatever it is, it's a violent taboo of some kind, isn't it? And it's kind of a joke, but it's also sending a message, okay? Um, and it is, in some sense, a kind of, if you like, a castration carried out at the level of the oral drive, okay? You do this thing that you're not supposed to do, and he'll come along and cut it off, okay? Uh, in this case, the thumb, which is uh, being sucked uh, uh, to pleasure the lips and the, uh, and the mouth. Um, and it's a sort of quite primitive, uh, Freud talks about this law in, in an essay we'll look at next term on the uncanny, uh, lex talionis, the law of retaliation, that, that there, there, that part of the body where you have transgressed, you will be punished. Okay? It's quite a primitive law. If you think of, say, in traditional religious, in religious traditions like in Islam, for instance, uh, uh, in Sharia law, what, what happens to thieves? Yeah, the hand that stole cut off, okay? There where you have sinned, you will be punished, okay? Um, so it's, it's a kind of uh, punitive castration drama played out at the level of the oral drive. So there's an implicit analogy here between obviously castration, genital castration, and um, uh, as a punishment for masturbation, say, and, um, and thumb sucking. Uh, the two are felt to be somehow, uh, somehow, um, uh, continuous with each other or one standing in for the other or implicated in each other in some kind of way, as if thumb-sucking were a form of oral masturbation that must by definition be forbidden because it's this um, transgressive pleasure-seeking um, uh, 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 activity, etc. Now we get, we get um, and we'll look at it in class, that wonderful description that Freud quotes in, in a footnote of a girl who describes the pleasures of kissing 
Lutscherli, it's a wonderful German word, um, for a kind of really long, hard, luscious, ki sucking kiss, as it were. Um, and she, she, she gives this little prose poem in which she celebrates the pleasures of this. Um, the, and uh, Freud rightly sees it as, as it were, a reprisal in, uh, in the, on the part of an adolent, ad, ad, adult or adolescent of uh, infantile oral pleasures that have a, a very powerful sort of erotic charge to them. But the other example I just want to throw down, I'll just read it out a little bit of it to you. Um, some of you who do the Romantic Victorian Poetry course this year, or might have done it last year, would have come across Christina Rossetti's great poem, Goblin Market, okay, with a pun on the word goblin. And the celebration there of the forbidden and transgressive nature of of, uh, of, of sucking a fruit, sucking, of sucking fruit, okay, uh, and sucking forbidden fruit. And therefore, if you suck forbidden fruit with a particular kind of intensity, almost ferocity, uh, then you're doing something that's felt to be uh, punishable and wicked, okay. I'll just read the, uh, the opening uh, of Goblin Market. Uh, morning, and again, it's a, as it were, it's a childhood poem. You know, it was, it was, a, it was a classic of the nursery. Um, uh, for, for, for decades. Morning and evening, maids heard the goblins cry, come by our orchard fruits, come by, come by, apples and quinces, lemons and oranges, plump unpecked cherries, melons and raspberries, bloom down cheeked peaches, swart headed mulberries. They're always described in rather fleshly terms. Wild freeborn cranberries, crab apples, dewberries, pineapples, blackberries, apricots, strawberries, all ripe together in summer weather, morns that pass by fair eaves that fly, come by, come by. Uh, so we get and the list is doubled again in length in a kind of rhythmic celebration of just the, just saying the words, saying the, of the different kinds of fruits, mouthing all these mouth-filling words. And then the response to the two little girls. Um, evening by evening among the brookside rushes, Laura bowed her head to hear. Lizzie veiled her blushes, crouching close together in the cooling weather, with clasping arms and cautioning lips, with tingling cheeks and fingertips. Lie close, Laura said, pricking up her golden head. We must not look at goblin men. We must not buy their fruits. Who knows upon what soil they fed their hungry, thirsty roots. Come by, called the goblins hobbling down the glen. Oh, cried Lizzie, Laura, Laura, you should not peep at goblin men. Lizzie covered up her eyes, covered close lest they should look, but Laura reared her glossy head and whispered like the restless brook. Look, Lizzie, look, down the glen, tramp little men. And you get a long catalogue celebrating rhythmically, uh, 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 describing the fruit uh, that they're being carried, that, that they're carrying down, the, f the forbidden fruit. Uh, and uh, this section of the poem ends with a kind of chorus. Laura stretched her gleaming neck like a rush embedded swan, like a lily from the beck, like a moonlit poplar branch, like a vessel at the launch when its last restraint is gone. So she gives in and uh, sucks the fruit uh, and um, starts to wither away and die, as all transgressive fruit suckers will. Uh, but there is a moment of redemption later on in the poem. So again, the poem very knowingly is using the language of forbidden fruit, uh, of the fall, um, of excessive intensities that need to be checked because they are they, they awaken an appetite that by definition is insatiable, that there'll never be enough, 
as it were. So it's not, um, I'm hungry and I'm, I'm meeting a biological need. It's drive functioning, okay? Uh, it's, it's an extraordinary acceleration. And the poem is full of rhythmic accelerations as catalogues of things you could suck, catalogues of things you could put in your mouth, um, uh, build up, uh, as it were, in paragraph after paragraph in a very um, poetically, very highly charged way. So a drama then is created around um, uh, taking things in through the mouth. Uh, which is clearly a sexual drama. It's a drama of transgression, transgression and taboo, of uh, forbidden indulgence and its punishment. Okay. So the culture, in some sense, you know, knows what's going on, even though at official level um, it doesn't. Okay. Um, and I'll leave you with that, with that thought about Freud's extension of, of human sexuality into uh, into other areas. 